All right. Good evening. I uh, have my first guest, or my only guest this evening, uh, Nick Mamatas, uh, who is a, an amazing science fiction and horror author and editor, also mystery writer. I, I don't want to leave that mm-hmm. leave that out. And uh, what we're gonna what we're gonna do with Nick is we're gonna talk about his odyssey as a writer, uh, as well as some common themes, and talk about some of the books. Uh, both nonfiction and fiction that he's written. And, and a lot of it really informs, um, A, his worldview, and then B, uh, you know, kind of how he's managed his writing career. He really lives by some of the books and advice that he's given. So so with that, uh, Nick, first first question out mm-hmm. of the gate, uh, what, what sorts of things do you write um, and why? I write a little of everything, although these days more fiction. I started off as a journalist in the late 90s when it was still possible to get 50 cents a word or not even a huge magazine or a dollar a word for a business magazine or $500 for 1,200 words for the Village Voice or different alternative weekly newspapers. Then, of course, came one, the dot-com boom, mm-hmm. an incredible increase in the amount of content, followed immediately by the dot-com bust, followed six months later by... 9-11. Well, so the, the one, two, three punch combo. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing that actually bears mentioning that if you if you go even before that, you grew up on Long Island, right? And mm-hmm. and, and it Brooklyn was and Long yeah. Brooklyn and Long Island. And it was in the shadow of kind of the end of the Cold War. Uh, there was like a massive defense industry there. And you mm-hmm. kind of lived through some of that too. So I'm assuming that was some of the some of the influence in your writing and, and things like that. But with, with that kind of as a, a stage, if you actually want to say more about that, would be, um, sure. you know, yeah. Yeah. So like growing up and talk a little bit about that and how it informs uh, at least your subsequent writing career as a, as a setup. Well, it made college very annoying because I actually uh, <clears throat> went to college in uh, 1989. Mm-hmm. Political science was one of my three concentrations. And uh, the first thing that happened was I went to, Poly 101, and he said, well, here's our our textbook. By the way, you can throw the textbook away. It's all over, because this is the Berlin Wall had been coming down over the summer. Francis Fukuyama, the end of history, yeah. Exactly. Well, even even if not that, it was all based around Cold War politics. Yep. And my book was published in 1987, where it seemed like it was going on for a long time. Um, The second thing that happened was... uh, as you alluded to the peace dividend, so-called peace dividend, because a lot of the contractors uh, on Long Island, like Grumman, North Corp, and uh, Lockheed and things like that, you know, started having some cuts. So all the very annoying Republicans on Long Island who had sent their kids to BU and Dartmouth realized they could no longer afford BU and Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. So they all came back to Long Island to go to SUNY Stony Brook, which is a state university. And all these kids were very interested in like, oh, the tax and spend Democrats, we have to destroy this university. So even though they're benefiting from it, right. their whole thing, they took over the newspaper, they you know, had all these weird rallies, all the usual kind of uh, fill in the blank review shenanigans that they learned at Dartmouth and at BU, they were doing the same kind of thing there. And of course, many of them were political science majors, still want to be lawyers <clears throat> because back in 1989, before computing, a, you know, destroyed the legal industry. Being a lawyer was like a good idea if you weren't too bright enough to be a doctor. Right. <clears throat> so, so I think I had a lot of classes with these guys and uh, having a lot of political arguments with them and uh, a lot of back and forth. 
Uh, and also there's a lot of other things going on on campus, like any you know, campus has uh, all sorts of political things going on. There was like a boycott of Coca-Cola over uh, apartheid. Mm-hmm. And uh, the right wing response was, well, the ANC are communists or the ANC are violent, etc. And so the four years of that really uh, sharpened arguments, changed arguments for me politically. And also at the same time, I just found the internet. Before the web, you know, it was Tiny Muds and Telnet and FTP and IRC. And like, oh, this is going to change everything. I'll never have to make a phone call again, which back in those days, you would have to call magazines and pitch them. Right. You wouldn't write them a letter or an email. You would have to say, oh, hi, is you know, Bill there? Hi, Bill, I've got this idea for an article of 1,200 words. And had I grown up 10 years earlier, I would not have been a writer. There's no way I'd be able to call somebody on the phone and pitch them an idea and have them not hang up on me in two seconds. Like this stammering asshole, who's this fucking guy? Click. But with an email, that was my lily pad to uh, actually becoming a writer. Now, and, and I think we'll get into this uh, probably likely in a later segment, but you're still, you still consider yourself a communist, right? Uh, anarcho-communist. Anarcho-communist. Okay. Anarcho- so, uh, mm-hmm. but you've stuck, I mean, you stuck with, were you, were you kind of interested in that, um, before you went to college, did, did college kind of, so no. when, do, when the, when the fall of the Berlin wall happened, how, like, how did you, cause you, uh, the one thing I, I admire about you is you, you, you've stuck with, you know, the philosophy, um, yeah. you, know, no, you know, even, even with the fall of communism and things like that. So, um, how, like how, how was, how was that, um, in terms of kind of dealing with the argumentation and, and, you know, particularly in that time, what was the, the well, end of history? Also, I was all for the uh, collapse of the Berlin Wall. I was never a Stalinist. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was always interested in like, you know, what they call socialism from below. Mm-hmm. And this is a trend that's not just, uh, you know, people say, oh, well, after that fell apart, of course you're going to say this. But that was a trend from the 19th century, socialism from below. And it was, a, <clears throat> you know, the great socialist party of Eugene Debs split over the Russian Revolution. It was a good order that. So even from the very beginning, this question was huge inside the left. Basically, about how to organize the economy, whether you do it democratically or you do it via planning. And how can it be democratic without being a market? Or with, or with a kind of shadow market. So my main interest has always been how do you plan an economy? How do you... Because, you know, and, and, the, and the other issues about you know, nation state and things like that were much less interesting to me. Okay, so so has its own things where well we'll just have big chore wheels and we'll spin the chore wheel and see what I also think that's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so so uh, which is which is actually interesting, and we'll talk about it in the the second segment. Is the world in terms of the art like making that possible? Um, back you know back in the eighties, it was a little bit harder. It would have been a little bit harder to realize because you, you, you. But now with the advent of the internet and things like that, you're, you know, that sort of bottoms up, you know, communism, mm-hmm. you know, the technology is, is possible for that. But let's, let's, you know, I just want to yeah. set the stage for everybody. And we can talk, sure. talk through that later. Um, okay. So, so it's kind of the, the late eighties, the internet is in full bloom and nine 11 happens. Then what? Well, then writing falls apart. Journalism falls apart. I mean, I know people who've lost 90% of their income. <clears throat> on September 12th, I had several pieces out, uh, checks owed to me, and people somehow found the will while 
the towers were still burning. I, I was living in Jersey City, right across the river. You know, wreckage from uh, the offices, like little burning pieces of paper, came onto my stoop. Oh wow! So I spent 9/11, you know, sweeping it off and putting out little fires and going down to the river to see it collapse and that kind of thing. And uh, like everyone else, things were closed. We couldn't, we couldn't leave Jersey. The path was closed. The path was actually destroyed. Uh, part of it was. So there was, we couldn't go to New York. Took a few days for us to get there to help out, you know, down by Canal Street, bringing dog food for the uh, corpse sniffing dogs, things like that. Uh, people who gave, gave blood, gave blood, you know. And of course, also beginning anti-war rallies immediately because <clears throat> the idea about who should we go, who should we go to war with was not Saudi Arabia. It was uh, our old. Well, we have these plans already about uh, Iraq and. And of course, Afghanistan was a was a major target. And even inside the anti-war movement, there was a lot of people said we were actually pro-war. Like their slogan was "Justice, not vengeance," which is a pro-war sentiment. Right. It just means can we can we pick the war instead of you, Mr. Bush, picking the war? And as it turns out, no, Mr. Bush picked the war. <clears throat> but after 9/11 on 9/12, I got a lot of emails saying, "Oh, guess what? Your your check and all our checks from the advertisers they were in the the Tower Five. <laughs> I guess they're all gone. We're going out of business. Bye. <laughs> and that happened to a lot of magazines. Oh, my God. Many of them were already suffering. I mean, I, there was one magazine I wrote for quite frequently called Artbyte, B-Y-T-E. It was the internet right. cyber culture thing. And they had gone through three editors and uh, were doing a lot of changes. So clearly they were going to collapse sooner or later. And 912 was like a great idea. Oh, sorry. All our money just burned up. Bye. And that was very common. And I made no money writing uh, for magazines for like nine months before I found like a $200 gig writing for some new webzine. And of course, the webzines that were coming out, like Salon.com and uh, Slate, we were paying, you know, if you discover Life on Mars, oh, Life on Mars, really? 400 bucks. <laughs> and lesser than that, like 200 bucks, that kind of thing. So it was really rough all around. And then I started, I've been writing fiction for a little while, but then I, I thought to myself, you know what, I might as well write fiction. Because so, it's not commercial. So that's when you started writing fiction. You didn't do it in college or? No, I was more interested in like the essay and journalism. Okay. And I dabbled in some fiction. I liked fiction. I tried to write a play. I tried to write little stories here and there. But there was always this idea like, oh, I'll write for the newspapers and the essays and then occasionally write fiction, which for many years is how writing a record worked. Every writer had, oh, you've written seven novels. Well, how do you keep busy? Well, I'd write for newspapers all the time. I write these personal essays all the time. Or I write, you know, book reviews for fancy magazines. Or pot boiling uh, service journalism. So every writer of the 20th century who, who you can name, who wasn't a mega seller, was always doing right. that. But that became impossible in the early 21st century. Okay, so you're- So one might as well write fiction. So you're coming out of, you know, post 9-11, you know, there's no checks to go around. Uh, you have the kind of the nascent internet. Well, actually, there, you know, the, the market, the bubble collapsed then too, yeah. right? Yeah, um, so if you put money in beans.com, you, you're, all your beans were gone. For those, if you're a child out there watching this for some reason, beans is like Bitcoin, but even worse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they they also had uh, I remember like pets.com and and oh, yeah you know, mm -hmm. yeah that yeah they all they all went there. web TV we could watch you know their own little TV shows on the web and back when it was almost impossible to watch television on the web because it was just you know extremely slow people were still having you know 56k modems and that kind of thing 
yeah, there's a lot of cases like that where where they even even like Apple had had a uh, the pilot didn't they have like the pilot or something like that? It was a complete oh, yeah. Palm pilot. That's right, Palm pilot. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was a complete failure. But the new uh, thing, remember the new thing was also kind of a yeah. Oh yeah, that was a dollar notepad. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you're in in this in, in this environment. There's there's some internet companies that are still around or or starting like you know Salon.com that are yeah. paying something. What do you do to kind of bridge the gap there? And you, and this is I'm guessing this is the uh, the genesis of of your book, which is now out of print officially. That's Star, right. Star better. Star better out of print as of yesterday morning. <clears throat> so Star better is a collection of essays and old blog posts and a couple some new material from 2011 where I discuss how to write short subjects to get money fast because <clears throat> I've always been frustrated by writing books and say oh well first you gotta stand and write your novel well that's like a year two years three years then find an agent that's a year two years three years then it'll come out and you get your five thousand bucks but what if I need fifty dollars mm-hmm. and they might not now, even buy your novel and they might not even that's buy right your you, know, you can write a second novel I mean my first novel didn't get published I have friends of mine you know, who, whose first novel is their fourth novel or fifth novel or ninth novel. <clears throat> so I wanted to focus on short subjects, basically short essays and feature reporting for the second tier of magazines, not Vanity Fair or The New Yorker, but the, anything from you know small men's magazines to the weekly papers I was writing for, to writing features for fiction magazines, like interviewing science fiction writers, like kind of like this, except written down. And the other half was about um, writing short fiction, primarily science fiction, fantasy, and horror, because that's what pays. You know, at the time, in 2001, three cents a word was professional rate. Now we're up to 20 years later, eight cents a word. And it's not because science fiction is become more popular, but because it's not commercial. But when someone pays eight cents a word, it's not because they're making money to pay eight cents a word, it's because they want to be loved by fans and by writers. And you, you, get, you get love by giving writers money, and then they love you. So because it's not commercial, it is uh, not as prone to the vagaries of, uh, of the economy. And when you, when you say it's not as when you when you when you say it's not as commercial, what do you mean by that? Well, look at major magazines like Apex or Clark's World. They're like a, a cottage industry. They're like a, not quite a hobby. You, they make some money doing it, but no one's pulling down the money that somebody who works at Esquire magazine makes. Yeah. Or even somebody who works at like Iguana World Monthly for the Iguana fan is making. So it is their, it is their evocation. And major magazines like Asimov's and Analog that have full-time staff have full-time staff because Penny Press also does Sudoku and Astrology and, you know, WordFind. Right. And the four magazines they have, the two science fiction magazines, the mystery magazines are basically cross-subsidized because they're all printed in the same time at the same place, they, they use the same office, and because the owner of Penny Press has an affection for the pulse. Okay, so you start you start writing for science fiction magazines, yes. um, and what you know what was your first uh, you know as you went through the process how how many you know I, I don't you probably don't remember this I'm asking for data but I, I want to try and make sure it's not specific, like super super specific. But you know, how long did it take for you to a make your I first sale? I know exactly how long it took. It's been a nightmare. It was uh, two years. Two years. Uh, is that quite right? You know, actually, it's not quite. Well, let's see. Seven. I really started submitting in 1997 fiction, mm-hmm. and I started publishing nonfiction in 1998. My first 
publication of fiction that was a short story in Tailbones, the now defunct uh, print magazine, but the publisher Fairwood Press still exists. And it was uh, my 13th story. And the first 12 were basically me learning how to teach myself how to write. The 13th story is the story that only I could write. It was about uh, Andy Warhol's dictum, that in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I made it literally true. So he follows somebody who's been famous 15 minutes over his uh, period of time. 1,800 words, I got $18 for it. Penny award. Penny award. That's still the semi pro right? Yeah, yeah, 18 bucks, man. And my roommate was like, well, what are you talking about? Didn't you get a 500 bucks last week from the Village Voice? Yeah, but this is fiction. It's much more difficult. And it is much more difficult yeah. to publish fiction than nonfiction. <clears throat> in your opinion, in your opinion, why is that? I mean, I have, I have a theory, but... Well, there are, two, there are two reasons. One, you don't need to be a writer to write nonfiction. That is, you can, if you can be a subject matter expert. Mm -hmm. And they'll work with you to make your expertise readable. So that's one level on which uh, nonfiction is easier to write. Even if you're a journalist, you just hand them the material. You hand them the quotes, you hand them this, and there's no uh, preciousness about it. If you hand them a 5,000 word piece and they have a room for 300 words, they're cutting from the bottom and the first 300 words are, are what's going up there. Mm -hmm. So that makes it easier. Also, just there's people want to read nonfiction. People want to read about sports. They want to read the news. They want to read about features. They want to read ideas. And fiction, especially short fiction, is not a pursuit that a million people want in this country. Maybe, maybe there are 250,000 people who are really interested in short fiction. And of course, of those, some segment of them might like science fiction, some segment of them like The New Yorker style fiction. Some of them are really nuts and love literary journals from, that are backed by universities. So between being 10 times easier to write and 10 times easier to sell, nonfiction pays 50 cents a word instead of you know half a cent a word. Right. <laughs> or at least back before uh, the internet made everyone a nonfiction author. Right. Every tweet's a press release. Every Facebook post is a uh, a feature report, that kind of thing. So you know that that dictum is kind of yeah yeah. Andy Warhol is converging toward the truth, right? Exactly. So then it, it took me about another year to sell a second story. Then the third story was published right away. Then the fourth story. Then a men's magazine in which I published nonfiction. I saw had published a piece of fiction. It was called Razor. At the time, you might remember Lad Mags, like Stuff and Maxim, which had almost no copy. Yeah. It was all like, you know, uh, Tara Reid looking cute, and then a pie graph, and then, hey, dudes, here's how you shave, and like a picture of a razor and that kind of thing. Then there were things like GQ and Esquire, which were like, you know, had reporters, like Norman Mailer kind of business, right. and Razor was in the middle. He said, oh, not as stupid as these magazines, but we can't afford to be these magazines, so we're in the middle. And I wrote a bunch of stuff for them about uh, movies and uh, some political stuff and things like that. Then I saw that they'd published a, a story from a guy in prison. I said, well, I'll send him a story too. And they published a story. And they gave me a thousand bucks. And they apologized for giving me a thousand bucks. Which story it was that? Huh? Um, it was, there were two stories that I published. Uh, what was the first story? The first story is called The Armory Show, which was about... Uh, now taking place in the in the past of uh, 2017 <laughs> and the 100th anniversary of the famous armory show of 1917 which you know introduced data to america and it's basically about uh, a guy who commits a mass murder as, as his art and an art critic stopping him 
using her critical power and her uh, fighting ability. And, and it was, was hmm? and, and, and is it $1,000 for that one or is it two that you sold? And I sold the second one as well, which is also another $1,000. Oh, wow. And they apologized because it wasn't the going rate. The going rate for words in Razor Magazine was 50 cents a word. But fiction, because it wasn't as popular, they said, oh, we were just using a flat rate of $1,000, sorry. Which you can do when you had half your pages are glossy ads and um, you know your magazine was five bucks and you had a circulation of half a million. That's totally a reasonable price. So what happened to Razor and Maxim and all that? It's the, the, the internet killed Razor, it? Well, I, interestingly enough, I had pitched some other things to Razor. There's another story going in there a couple of years later. I didn't have a long relationship with them. I published maybe seven pieces with them in addition to the three stories, so like nine pieces all together. And uh, another editor came in and she's so excited. like, oh, we're going to work out. I'm going to go to the meeting right now, pitch these ideas. Never heard from them again. Then I see in the news or the internet that uh, Razor shut down that day. So that meeting she was going to was the meeting where she was getting fired. And oh, they're that's all getting fired. Yeah. <laughs> and that happens a lot in publishing. It's like, oh, we're going to this meeting. We're going to talk about your book. We're going to talk about your future as a writer. And they never get back to you because the email shuts down right away. And then two weeks later, you hear from them on, on social media or you hear news. Yeah, I'm back at my mom's house. Got a job at the pet shop. Do these people ever come? Else. Do these people ever come back or, or once that happens, they're done? They come back. Okay. Sometimes they come back in weird ways, but they come back. And it's true of fiction too. I know a lot of people who wrote a lot of fiction and then they sort of lose track of fiction or don't care about it or hit some limit or they get upset about it, but these are writing skills and now they're working for Yelp. Huh. Or they're writing memoirs or they're writing other things. You know, an acquaintance of mine was a horror writer in the early 2000s. And I saw him around in Jersey and New York, and he's a nice guy. And now he writes for uh, environmental magazines. And he has a heart-rending column about uh, species that are endangered and going extinct. Hmm. And it's really, like, difficult. Like, oh, here's another one. There's another bird you're never going to see again. <laughs> a hard, it's a hard beat to, to be a writer for, I imagine. Well, he obviously enjoys it for some, some twisted reason. <laughs> well, some, well, it pays, and he's helping people. He's helping the world. He thinks, and of course, sometimes there's good news. Oh, we did find one. We found one more fish. It was not extinct. All right, Whew. that happens occasionally. So, it, through throughout all this, where does the the term paper art, art artist kind of come? Like, when when did you discover that opportunity? In the newspaper. Well, well, first they, of all, just explain, explain what I'm talking about. I will. Sure. So I wrote term papers for a living for quite a long time. I bought a house with term paper money in uh, Jersey City. Oh, my so God. So right by Manhattan, the house that was, uh, I was living in a 9-11 was a term paper house. So, so, so how, like, the, day, the subprime mortgage uh, where anybody, oh, you're, are you alive? You hear, Here's your mortgage. Enjoy. So it wasn't that difficult. So how but much would students paper. pay? How much would students pay for, for like various term papers? Well, they would pay twenty to thirty dollars a page, but I would get ten dollars a page, and of course, the uh, the capitalists would get ten bucks a page. And oh, the, so there was an or, there was an organized company that did this. There's there's a there's a whole network of organized companies that did compete <laughs> and that kind of thing, and that's how I found my first job. My first job was the newspaper. Writers wanted, must like politics, economics, and literature. Oh, I, I like those things. <laughs> and I applied, and uh, it was a uh, a guy running a term paper mill out of Jersey City which he planted halfway between Boston and DC to get all the colleges. 
and I'd have to hand, I'd have to print out papers and go there every couple of days, given three copies, one for the student, one for his files, and one for, for no other purpose. And there, they, there, was, a, there was a kind of a, a waiver saying, we're not going to use it, we're not, I'm not handing in this paper, that's just a model for me to look at, and who knows. Well, sometimes you do know, because like I said, I was an anarcho-cognist, so when there was an economics paper, I'm like, oh, as Mark says in the uh, in Capital volume too. <laughs> just throw that in there, see if the professor's be reading, you know. <laughs> Ah, okay. So, so you, you it, put your fingerprints on a little bit so that yeah, you can track. Yeah. I remember one time my first novel, Move Underground, came out in 2004, and some kid said, you can write about any novel you want. I'm like, oh, great. So I wrote about Move Underground, and I, he even, they were even complained to the broker saying, that, you know, one, I got two word comments about this. Like, the first comment from the person was, what the hell is this? <laughs> and two, I don't think you understood the book. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah so what happened if they were if somebody got like I mean, was there some sort of guarantee that you'll get like a b or better on these things or no 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 guarantee this is the model paper oh yeah okay people will complain anyway but of course these are the people who buy term papers from the newspaper so they're they're, they're complaining types to be honest with you right they're the type of complaining Although I will say, and I meant, I talked about this in the term paper artist, the famous essay, famous because we printed a bunch of times. In, in, in what book? In what book? Um, currently, you can get it in the Planet Breaker Sun, which is my small collection from PM Press, which includes a novella, The Planet Breaker Sun, another short story, the term paper artist, and an interview with me with Terry Bisson, who is the series editor. And this this series has had like Kim Stanley Robinson, Ashley Gwynn, Joe Lansdale, a lot of famous people, and then there's also me. And you can find it in the links, in the links in the bottom of this YouTube video. Absolutely, check yeah. down there. Yeah. Really do. <laughs> technology, technology, right? <laughs> yeah. So when I moved to California to get my job in publishing, uh, I gave up term paper writing, and I they actually owed me some money. And the guy was like, "I'm not giving you that money. I'm in Thailand, trying to try to get it." I'm like, "Okay, I think I know a way to get this money." <laughs> and so I wrote the term paper artist, sort of blowing the lid off the industry. <laughs> <laughs> and it got published and it got me in the, on NPR. I was called a whore on NPR. Oh, that's that's who, who called you a whore on NPR? Um, the guy who was recently fired, he his uh, his show is on the media, and he got recently fired just some months ago for uh, yelling at staff members and like being obnoxious generally. So, so in fact, he was obnoxious on air too. Huh. And we were talking about he was really upset as most people try to pretend to be upset. Oh, you turn papers? Why? How dare you? What if it's a nurse? Like, you know, nurses did hire me, but not for nursing. They hired me for poetry classes. Right. They were good at nursing. A lot of them were Russian immigrants who were highly credentialed in Russia, but that credential doesn't carry over, so they have to like you know drive a cab and go back to school to learn the same thing I learned. But now we want them to learn about Edgar Allan Poe as well. Yeah, it makes no sense, but yeah. So you so you may as well you know farm that out, right? And of course, a lot of business students hired me because you know what you what do you learn in business school? Hire your weaknesses. Right, you went to business school, didn't they teach you that? Uh, yeah, but the, <laughs> so, so, some people have some some students have integrity, others others. Are, <laughs> Look, you're you're just you're just you're just meeting the needs of the market, right? That's <laughs> yeah, there's an unmet need in the market that you're meeting. That's that's one thing. It's the people who think it should be illegal. It's called the Constitution, First Amendment, <laughs> freedom of speech. That's right. That's right. Where's and you're not plan? selling them with the intent for them to use them in their courses. Not, you're yeah, just writing not, model I'm papers. Not the, 
Yeah, if they're fraud, if they're committing fraud, that's their problem. Yeah. Who are they defrauding but themselves? That's right. Well, they're also defrauding people who might get lower grades because you're a better writer than many of the people that would be in those classes. So <laughs> <laughs> that'd be a good class action suit one day. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Well, it's just, you know, and then, yeah, then you'll have your little uh, trademark inside each of the, each of the. <laughs> oh, yeah, there were, there were things for watermark. And of course, you know, I would put in stuff that would sort of signal it was to a smart grad student or a smart professor that something else is going on here. But uh, so, yeah, so I was on. The, so this came out in the magazine, the Smart Set, an online magazine run by Drexel University, 400 bucks. So that made up some money and it sold again to a couple of textbooks. For our freshman composition, it's as if to let the kids know we're on to you. We know about this term paper business. And uh, textbooks pay really well because they know what is the circulation of a textbook. Yep. Well, I mean, I don't know what the, the, the number is, but I know that people, you have a captive audience, so to speak. Right? Exactly. You must buy yeah. this textbook. Yeah. And not just one class, but, you know, dozens of classrooms, hundreds of classrooms use it across the country every year. So when were you interviewed by NPR? Like what, what year? 2008 when the when the essay came out i wonder if that's viral i wonder if that's it's, still up it is still up okay. this is a better interview by the way you're already better than this guy you <laughs> you're doing great on your second uh youtube <laughs>